0: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, everybody. So today, the sponsor for my podcast is my other podcast. I am launching Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. It launched Monday, October 12th, and hopefully it'll stick around for a long time. It features uh, women talking to other women about their journeys of their bodies and getting tips and commiseration and all the things we need so that we don't feel alone and trying to make our bodies feel better tomorrow than they do today. So check out Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight and it's also a community now on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. So if you fall into that category like I do and so many of us, um, come join us. The door is open. Anne Helen Peterson is the author of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. She's a BuzzFeed culture writer, and she had a viral article on millennial burnout, which was BuzzFeed News' most read article of 2019, shared from everyone, from Andrew Yang to Ariana Huffington. Anne writes about the forces that have created millennials' permanent state of exhaustion including how the gig economy, constant access to email and Slack, and the rise of the side hustle have made working only 40 hours a week a distant fantasy. In the middle of, in between rather, my recording this episode and recording this introduction, she's actually already sold another book, which I don't know when that will be coming out, but it's called Out of Office, the Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home. Oh, it looks like fall 2021, so that'll be her next book. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Hi! Hi, how are you? Good, Good, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on Mom's Day on Time to Read Books. Of course. Oh my gosh, look at your
1: beautiful library. Thank you. (laughs) Pride and joy. (laughs) Great that you can have it as your background on your Zoom call so that everyone, more people can see it. True, I know.
0: (laughs) the rest of this pandemic, I've sort of been out on Long Island and I got a, you know, Ordered a bookcase because I had nothing to showcase books at all, and this is like my whole built-in library. It's like what a waste yeah. <laughs> all this month. But anyway, well, congratulations on can't even. That was exciting. I saw you were all dolled up on Instagram, which is always nice to be able to.
1: <laughs> it was honestly the first time that I've like done the full deal since May when I had to do like a video appearance for something for like a an Adobe conference or something, and I like I didn't recognize myself. I was like, what is happening? But it's good. I I actually think I should like do it for no reason a little bit more often because it like reminds you, like reminds me of a different face that I have. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, tell listeners, please, what Can't Even is about and how it was based off of an article and what made you want to write it. And I know it flowed out of you. I know you talked about it in the book It just like blah, 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 came out of your fingers. But, you know, tell us a little more about how it all gets started.
1: So I was really, really burnt out. This was the fall of 2018, leading up to and then after the midterm elections. And I had like, I think I had been burnt out for a really long time. It's just that I refused to recognize what I was feeling as being burnt out. I was like, this is just how I work. And but I had like reached a point where I was like, getting mad at my editors and like crying. And one of my editors was like, you're burnt out. You need to take some time. And I was like, no, <laughs> like I had taken like two days, Monday and Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Like, of course I didn't need any more time. And I, the thing that I thought was wrong with me is I like, couldn't figure out how to do my errands. Like the, you know, the, just the piddly stuff at the bottom of your to-do list. I just couldn't do it. And I was like, I'll research that. I'll figure out what's going on with that. And as I researched it, it was like, oh yeah, I've totally burnt out. Like all the all roads led to burnout. By the way, the things that you mentioned in the book
0: on your to-do list that you weren't getting to, they don't even make it onto my list. <laughs> <laughs> like the things you were beating yourself up about, I'm like resoling my shoes. Like, what? No. <laughs> I mean, like, they, like it's not even like in the realm of possibilities. So the fact that you even had it on a list, I think was a step up. Well, it was like, I mean, like
1: the cobbler, like I love these boots. Like I want to just wear these boots for the rest of my life, right? Like I just, they need to get resold. Otherwise the cobbler gives you dirty looks when you bring them in, right? I don't want the scorn of the cobbler. But, you know, I, all signs pointed to burnout, but still like the, the diagnosis of burnout as it was clinically described did not match like what I was feeling, Exactly. Because they like clinically, they usually describe it as like collapse, right? And I wasn't collapsing, I was still going. And so I wanted to try to figure out how to describe, maybe expand that definition to describe a more societal instead of just clinical diagnosis. And so I try to look at my own life and where I had learned to work all the time and really internalize that ethos. And then extrapolated a little bit more onto like the rest of my generation. But it was pretty, like it was a personal essay that like was long. (laughs) And I thought that it would function like a lot of personal essays, you know, a couple 10,000 people would read it. That like, that was not a case, 7 million people read it. (laughs) And, And so when I thought of like the idea that I could expand it into a book, it was really straightforward to expand it both in terms of historical rooting, right? To look like, okay, what happened in the economy and in changes in childbearing patterns and like all that sort of thing in the post-war period, you know, that affected our parents and burnt out boomer parents and then also expand it way past myself and try to de-center that like white middle-class experience that I had.
0: You talked in the book about a lot of your own, as you mentioned, personal stuff. It started as a personal essay, but then you sprinkled in just a lot of Experiences of your own, like your parents' divorce. Yeah. So tell me about how that sort of impacted, how that exemplified this sort of burnout, how, it, how the culture led to, how systemic things in the environment and culture led to burnout, culture yeah, now. Yeah,
1: I read this really mm-hmm. interesting book by Catherine Newman. It was published in, like, I think the early 90s. And it was about, like, all of these different ways that boomer families often trying tried to compensate for ways that they were falling out of the middle class. So so many boomer families they had grown up in homes that had become middle class for the first time, right, in the post-war period. And then just as boomers were ent- entering the workplace in the 1970s, that economic stability started to disintegrate through a series of rolling recessions. And so you have these families she like she follows this one family I remember that like had been like a Wall Street banker, got laid off, but like still lived at that level right? Even though he was laid off because they didn't know how to live any other way but middle class and went into like significant credit card debt. And I think that story will be familiar to anyone who's had financial insecurity, but like doesn't, like cannot fathom not living the way that they're living. And I don't mean like lavishly necessarily, but just having like the accoutrements of middle-class lifestyle. So a house, right, that you own instead of rent. I mean, depending if you're living in a city, this is different, but a house, uh, like cars, right? Like new clothes and gadgets and stuff for for your kids, computers. And there are ways that you could be so much more thrifty and really decrease your cost of living footprint, but that is unfathomable once you've come to that middle class. It's, It's a real psychological burden to like really to shift classes, to go downward. And so- To connect this to my parents' divorce, she has this whole chapter that is about what happened to women who got divorced during this period, because they have incredible downward mobility, because a lot of these women, these boomer women, stopped their jobs. You know, they had, this was one of the first generations that went en masse into the job market, but then many of them had taken a step back from the job market in order to raise their children, right? And allowed their husband's careers to take precedence. And so when they get divorced, you know, whether the kids are in elementary school or in junior high, the, the income, you know, the, the wife doesn't necessarily have a career and, and can't necessarily like restart her career where she left it or didn't have one in the first place. The husband still has a career and can just continue going on, right? And they're living in two different houses, but they have to pay rent for two different spaces. And so... The, like the, the income level of that secondary house, because usually the kids would either be primarily like custody with their, with their mom or splitting custody. But the, the experience of being a kid in one of those households, it just teaches you as a millennial, as a Gen Xer, like it teaches you a lot of lessons about, oh, well, this is what happens if you don't have a plan for yourself at all times, right? If you don't know how to work at all times, like at any moment this marriage could go under and you could like find yourself financially afloat. And I certainly internalized that idea and I tried to expand on it in the book. So do you feel like, I know
0: at the end you say you don't want to give a an overwhelming list of tips, right? And that those are kind of useless also. Yeah. But I feel like what, like you do such a good job of outlining the hurdles, right? Like, and I feel like you did it with some, so you were sort of like pissed off writing this book. I felt like <laughs> oh, I yeah. could like, you were like, it was not venting because it was so well articulated, but it was more just like you're angry, yeah. like at the situation and you feel that there is sort of no way out unless everybody changes everything. Right. <laughs> and that's tough. So what do you think can actually
1: help if, or is it, are you doomed? (laughs) No, I don't think we're doomed. And I don't think that every, like every last thing about our lives have to change. Like we don't have to like leave our homes. Right. right. (laughs) I just think that like there are palliative things that we can do in our own lives to decrease our own personal burnout. Like, You can institute, try to institute better borders between the workspace and the rest of your life. You can have better digital hygiene in terms of like, I delete Twitter off my phone on the weekend or whatever, but all of those things are band-aids. Ultimately, if you're fighting against this larger system, that is broken, right? Because it is always going to be the larger, the stronger force. Like the, (laughs) the burnout inherent to that system is going to swallow you no matter like what, you know, armor you put on to resist it. So I think that like there are those smaller things that we can each individually do. But as a society, I hope that that anger and that frustration is contagious because I think that as millennials, like we have been taught to, despite our reputation, to kind of put our head down and be like, okay, well, I guess I just need to work all the time. Like, this is just my life. And instead we can look at our lives and say, it doesn't have to be this way. How can we together say that loudly and then also decide that we want change, not just incremental change, but like societal change? So, what's
0: something in your dream, in your dream scenario here, not to like put you on the spot, yeah. that if society were to change, and I know you reference everything from like pensions and social security and like parental burnout, like I, yeah. I know there's a lot of stuff. What's like one thing maybe that could happen that could make things better?
1: Mandatory, like get- <laughs> mandatory <laughs> paternity leave, right? I think that like, you know, we don't even have mandatory maternity leave, but the chapter on parenting burnout, I think anyone who reads the book will see just how angry all of these moms are, right? They're just like so tired and so angry. And there's a lot of resentment. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that like you're doing all of these things that society has has told you to do to be a good mom. And then you also just feel like in your home, in your heterosexual home, that it is really difficult to find anything close to an equitable labor split even with the most progressive of husbands or the most feminist of husbands. And so I think that one thing that has been shown in other countries and to some extent in the U.S. to actually sustain equitable splits of labor through in the long term is if a father stays home for an extended period of time by himself with kids. Because what that does is it teaches fathers everything that, that has to be done in order to like take care of children and run a household. So, you know, that is something on a societal level that we could do to pretty radically reorganize the way that labor is split in the home, that it could have ramifications like across society. And then also like, you know, (laughs) government subsidized and funded affordable childcare would be a huge thing. Like every parent I know is stressed out about finding reliable care. This is even pre-COVID, right? Reliable, affordable care really really hard and you know other countries have shown it's it's doable and it takes a huge burden off of parents
0: i'm still like trying to digest the idea of mandatory paternity leave because you know this will sound very anti-feminist of me but as a mom of four like i actually wanted to be with my kids oh yeah like i wouldn't want to have I don't know that I could have been like, all right, honey, I'm taking off (laughs) two weeks postpartum. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh yeah. No,
1: it's not like two weeks postpartum. Mostly it would be like a lot of places that do this. It's like maybe for like from year one to year two or year one to to 18 months. Like, you know, at some point or 18 months to two, like it, it doesn't have to be like in those early times. It's more just like, it teaches like the, and you also like, it's not like the mom necessarily would have to go back to work if, or if they don't work in a traditional setting or something like that, but they can do anything that they want as long as the male is primarily responsible for, you know, keeping the child alive.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And not
1: like call it babysitting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You're not babysitting your own kid. (laughs) Right. (laughs)
0: You know, I I think even in your introduction, it was interesting because you were saying like, you don't even expect jobs to last, right? You don't even have the expectations that were for so many of us assumptions, right? right? Now you don't even have them. I feel like I don't know how you would maintain any sort of like positive outlook and inner equilibrium if you felt that there was no true hope. And I know there are things societally we can do, but aside from you getting up and running for president, which no, you maybe even no no no, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I, I feel like there's still potential for joy and, and oh, yeah. is in the context of societal like frustration. Right. And yeah. I think that right. I mean you have to like I don't know. I feel like I'm trying to make you feel better because I felt like you were so
1: upset in the books. And now I feel like I'm
0: like answering your upsetness. <laughs> no,
1: well, I think the the problem with burnout is, is it swallows joy, right? It swallows all of those moments that like for me, you know, I, I knew how to find like kind of serendipitous moments of happiness, like, in the corners of my life and that sort of thing. And I think that, like, both my exhaustion and then, like, the way that we come to rely on our phones and, like, Instagram as crutches during those moments, like, it takes your best intentions, right? And and cannibalizes them. And that is the frustration. Like, you know, in, I was very careful to always ask all the parents that I interviewed for the book. I was like, you know, tell me all these things that you're frustrated about, but also tell me the thing that makes you so happy about parenting. And I think a lot of them were like, there are all these things that I love about being a parent and I love about my kids. But because of all of these other stresses, all of these other instabilities, it makes it so hard to focus on those things, right? Yeah. So That's what true. I think a burnout cure does, right, is cure, it, it offers relief from those sources of precarity, that rob you of your ability to like feel just genuine, simple joy. So
0: let's, speaking of genuine, simple joy, you must have had some of that when you saw that you had 7 million views of your article.
1: (laughs) I mean, it was very gradual, right? Like it was like accumulated over the course of several months, but yeah, it was, it's a weird thing to, to go viral on that level. Like you... And one thing about burnout and about I think what a lot of millennials are experiencing is that there's not a lot of space to like feel even that those ups and downs, right? Like the way I try to describe burnout is that everything, highs and lows, like vacations, non-vacations, like everything flattens. And there's a lot that bears similarity to some symptoms of depression, but like also like if you're just trying to get through every day, it's hard to feel catharsis. Like I think back wistfully all the time about my time in college when you would like study so hard for a final and then take the final and then you'd be like, and I'm done, right? Mm-hmm. Like just that incredible release. And you'd always get sick. I would always get sick oh, because yes. your body is like letting down its its defenses. And and then I would go home and like this is you know a very like rarefied privileged experience to like be able to go home and I didn't have to work over break. I would just like sleep so much and recover. And then it would be just enough of a, like a long enough of a break and a total break that I would come back to school and be just so excited to be back, right? You really have that moment of incredibly hard work, achievement and catharsis, recovery and return. And how many of us have anything approximating that in our lives? Right.
0: Well, I will tell you, I <laughs> I got divorced, I don't know, six years ago now or something like that. But and I, you know, I split custody. I have more of it. But anyway, I have every other long weekend I don't have my kids. Yeah. And so in my head, I know that I have a point now where I actually can relax and get sick and do yeah. all, all that stuff. Yeah. Which I didn't have for years and years. And then my oldest kids are thirteen and no, I guess I wasn't divorced six years ago. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Point is that was introduced into my life after many, many years of stay-at-home parenting. And I was like, oh my gosh, I finally (laughs) had this little, break from the rainstorm right. for just a few days so I can catch my breath. And I found that I came back as like a far stronger mom. Right. And yeah. now, so in, if we're going to like put our little wish lists out there for how to like help society, I feel like, <laughs> I don't think mandatory divorce is the
1: answer. Yeah, I know. Well, and that's the problem, right? Is like, if the only way for you to get those moments is like, man, is a divorce, right? Like that shows yeah. that something is wrong. That's true. That's true.
0: But, you know, more evolved couples perhaps could have had, you know, some sort of, I don't know. I think you're right. That um, I'm just going to, I'll just get away from my own situation. No. I, I don't know. <laughs> Having the breaks now has been absolutely life saving to me. Yeah. And I don't think I could even have this whole like creative pursuit in my life and just all this stuff without the sleep and the regeneration. So totally. Anyway,
1: not to like brag, like, you are not, no, and you're not alone. And I think like in order to have that regeneration and also like other parents have told me that like, they want to be better, more patient parents. Right. But if you're so tired, you're just kind of at this baseline of annoyance and you don't like this sort of parent that you become. And, and that's hard. Right. I, I find that sometimes in my relationship, I'm like, I'm not being the partner that I want to be right now. So, how do I try to fix that? Usually, it's take a nap.
0: I remember in college when I would get so worn out and so tired studying and all this stuff. And I'd be like, should I take a nap or should I go to the gym? Should I take a nap or should yes. I go to the gym? Yes. And I was like, I don't know. I only have 35 minutes. Well, now I have 34 minutes. Well, now I only have 32 minutes. Well, let me try to take a
1: nap. Oh, no. Well, now I can't sleep. Nope. <laughs> like- well, and that's the thing. I, this is such a great... Example of like the optimized way that we approach our time is when you're like, okay, I have 30 minutes to nap. That's the only time I have a nap. And you it becomes such an over determined, like, I have to nap right now that I can't nap ever, right? Because you're like, I have to do this thing right now. It doesn't work. It's just like that. This me, is why, this is why I
0: never nap. <laughs> <laughs> This is literally it, unless I am so tired that I like somehow just basically fall over. Yep. yep. <laughs> or I'm like reading to a kid, and I like, or I'm reading to myself, and next thing I know, like all the lights are on, and I'm I'm sound asleep. But yes,
1: that's um, right. When your problem. body tells you, your body forces you to say, like, doesn't matter yep. if you have time for this. Right. Nap time. Yeah. <laughs> Ready or not, here we
0: come. Oh my gosh. Well, that's funny. So. You have can't even out there, which is so exciting. What are your like ambitions now? Like, do you wanna be political, not necessarily the president? Do you want to try to affect societal change? Do you want to keep writing? Do you want to focus on this?
1: Like what what where where are you what do you think? Yeah, no, (laughs) I'm not like a policymaker. Like I like reading other people's policy suggestions, but like that's not, you know, that's not my expertise. Like people have a lot of expertise in that area and familiarity. And I am more like my training as my PhD is in media studies. Like I just, I, I love reading history and synthesizing ideas and trying to figure out what what's going on, right? Like why why are we acting the way that we are acting? <laughs> I guess you could call that like examining ideologies of a, per, of a given moment, that sort of thing. I think that my next project is going to do with work from home and like the new, the brave new world of hybrid working from home and how you can prevent it from like sucking your life into it. Like it, it could be like a real way to, to even become more burnt out or... It can help us think about how to reorient our lives away from work, which might be revelatory, but still trying to think through some of the first steps on that.
0: Oh, I love that. I actually have found with so much more stuff going on at home that all of the stress of logistics and running around has yep. like taken a big burden off. Yep. Like I have all this extra time and energy now that I'm not like racing from place to place and figuring out how to get all my kids there. Now it's like, okay, okay.
1: Right. You well, and I <laughs> I used to travel so much for work and for speaking stuff and that sort of thing. And like, I think for a lot of people who have been slowed down by the pandemic generally, like obviously when we can start moving around a little bit, I'm like going on a vacation, <laughs> like having a, like our actual vacation as soon as possible. But like, I can't see myself returning to that level of right. franticness. And, and that's, I mean... It's one of the small silver linings of all of this, I think, is some perspective. It's true. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Uh, just, I mean, this is what it, people always say, but I really think like sometimes you get really precious about writing and are like, okay, I have to be like in the right place and it has to be like the right kind of writing and I need to like, it need to be good as it comes out. And I am a big proponent of just barfing on the page and then coming back and editing. So write a lot.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Moms don't no have time to read books, and for our little like little therapy session over yeah. anger and anxiety and, yeah. <laughs> and divorce and all. <laughs> and congratulations again on on your book coming out. Thank you so much. This is great. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I know I enjoyed recording it. Don't forget to check out my new podcast. Moms don't have time to lose weight. Pretty soon, moms won't have time to listen to podcasts and check out the Instagram community that goes along with it and if you would like to join please request to join it's for anyone who wants to feel body better in their body tomorrow than they do today and it's a supportive group of like-minded souls who just need the community to achieve their goals moms don't have time to lose weight thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books